Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. Shockwaves continue to reverberate following last week's posting by CMS of the 2020 proposed rule for the inpatient perspective payment system. Standing by to report this developing story is Lori Johnson. There seems to be bipartisan support to end the surprise billing. No surprise here since the 2020 elections are on the horizon. Matthew Albright reports our lead story this morning. In other news, target of probe and educated auditors appear to be more draconian than rack auditors. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel is standing by with that story. Modern Money senior correspondent Nancy Beckler reports on the confusion surrounding G codes. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hurst, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Last week, we finally got the 2020 IPPS proposed rule, another 1,800-plus pages of exciting reading. I diligently searched for references to the two midnight rule, to the RACs, to other auditors, or rules affecting the Medicare Advantage payer abuses, and found nothing. Boring. Well, but then I looked a little closer, and I did find some pretty interesting things. Now, last week, you heard me talk about how the readmission reduction program is finally making adjustments to account for a hospital's percentage of patients with Medicare and Medicaid as a surrogate for the social determinants of health. Well, that's a good first step. But in this rule, CMS took a second step. They're now proposing to establish Z59.0 homelessness as a CC encoding. Now, you've heard Ellen Fink-Samnick, Diane Iverson, and me advocate for getting all social determinants coded onto claims, but that was not well received by some since it would adversely affect coding productivity with no financial benefit. Well, that argument may soon be meritless. Coding homelessness will be worth thousands of dollars in added reimbursement, at least for Medicare patients. But now that CMS has taken the first two steps, they still need to learn to walk by recognizing that many more social determinants influence the cost of care and establishing those as CCs or even MCCs. And speaking of CCs and MCCs, CMS is proposing to change the MCC designation of 1,492 codes. When I found this, I sent it to my favorite CDI expert, Dr. Erica Reamer, and in under an hour, she called me pointing out that something was very wrong in Baltimore. First, she was flabbergasted that they were proposing to change diagnoses like ventricular fibrillation and end-stage renal disease from an MCC to a CC and changing cardiac arrest from an MCC to a non-CC. Then she looked at proposed changes such as acute pyelonephritis going from a non-CC to a CC, which made sense until she realized that it currently is a CC And the narrative discussion talks about it moving to a non-CC, not from a non-CC, as confusing as that is. Of course, I called CMS to ask about this, 
but since they block my number, I don't know if they'll get the message and provide an explanation. Dr. Reamer's gonna have much more to say about this on Talk 10 Tuesday tomorrow. The proposal also makes changes to the wage index, a factor applied to payments to account for the cost of employing staff. Rural hospitals may see a significant boost in their wage index, which is great, but since this is budget neutral, for some larger hospitals, this may not be pretty as their wage index drops. New technology payments add-ons also get changed from 50% of the cost to 65%. Now, isn't that generous of CMS? CMS also is proposing more restrictions on LTAX by lowering their payments if they don't exceed 50% of their patients meeting the ICU or ventilator requirement. This bodes poorly for patients who need long-term acute care but weren't in an ICU or on a vent. Sad to see that CMS deprive these patients of the excellent specialized care they could get in an LTAC. That's all for now, Chuck. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey, here is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to all. We received a request from one of our listeners to review requirements for reporting and coding functional limitations and modifiers for Part B, PTOT, and speech. CMS had a confusing start on the FLR mandate, and it seems that in communicating the official end of the reporting requirements, there's also some confusion. We'll get back to that in a moment. Now for the beginning. FLR was mandated in the Middle Class Tax Relief and Jobs Creation Act in 2012 and intended to collect data on beneficiary function via claims during the course of therapy service so that CMS could better understand beneficiary conditions, outcomes, and expenditures. Beneficiary function was reported using 42 non-payable functional G-codes along with seven severity complexity modifiers on PTOT and speech claims. While there was attendant confusion on how many providers could report and how many FLRs could be reported and how long the FLR status remained in the system, a claims hitch significant in causing denials was resolved with the addition of a one-cent charge to the claims line on institutional claims. On the 1,500 forms, there were sequencing issues if all the FLR codes did not appear on the first screen or page. The functional impairments identified and expressed in the long-term treatment goals per CMS goal requirements must be consistent with those used in the claims-based functional reporting. So in other words, under the mandated goals under the plan of care, it tied the non-payable G-codes to that. Keep that thought for a moment. Due to the calendar year 2019 physician fee schedule rulemaking, effective for dates of service on or after January 1st of this year, Medicare no longer requires the functional reporting of non-payable G-codes and severity modifiers on things for therapy services. For CMS, after a consideration of stakeholders' requests for burden reduction and a review of the Middle Class Tax Relief and Job Creation Act, CMS concluded in the final rule that continued collection of functional reporting data would not yield additional information for future analysis. CMS retains the set of 42 non-payable G-codes through the end of this year, as this will allow time for therapy providers and other private insurers who currently use these codes for the purposes of functional reporting to update their billing systems and policies. 
So in order to avoid unnecessary delays or denials, if you're resubmitting for claims for 2018, be sure these are in your CDM or in your EMR. Now for the kicker. CMS recently posted an update on the FLR codes in an MLM Matters article, but also noted the program's been discontinued. I hope you're not confused by CMS' attempt at burden reduction. Any further questions, please direct them to me, and I'll be glad to answer. Now for our poll, and this is courtesy of Dr. Ron Hirsch in his segment. In light of the CMS proposal to establish homelessness as a CC, have you talked to your coders about reviewing case management documentation and coding social determinants of health? Check number one, if you currently code for social determinants. Check two, if you've talked to your coders, but you still don't code them. Check three, if you have no idea if you code them or not. And I guess you can check number four if you have no idea if you code them or not. So uh, thank you to everybody. We'll be back with the results of the poll a little bit later in the program. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of this very interesting poll later in the broadcast. And coming up in about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Laurie Johnson, and our special guest, Matthew Albright. This is Monday. It's April the 29th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's important information about the new healthcare publication focused specifically on the third-party auditors. It's the Auditor Monitor. The current edition of Auditor Monitor gives you a deep dive on the Medicare Administrative Contractors, the MACs. It's a complete desktop resource on the MACs. You'll learn all about MACs, including information you didn't know about the MACs, like the number of claims they process each year, more than a billion, and the errors they've made. All this and more is ready for your team to process in the current edition of the Auditor Monitor. Not a subscriber? Well, here's the chance to have your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Subscribe now at the Rack University Bookstore. Order your subscription today and start receiving your edition of the Auditor Monitor. Thanks, Clark. There's a proven strategy to avoid medical necessity denials, and you'll learn how during this upcoming webcast. It's coming your way May 16th here at Rack Monitor, and you could save... 40 bucks when you're registered simply be entering the coupon code Monday. And now for the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, I ask you this every Monday, but what could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So today's risk is people who take initiative. Now, sure, that sounds a bit counterintuitive, and in fact, it's not something I'd normally say. I'm a fan of initiative. But last week, I got a call from a client in the industrial Midwest that had received a subpoena from the state Medicaid program. Actually, I should say subpoenas because they received multiple copies of the same subpoena. So while I was working with the compliance officer preparing our response, she discovered that an employee who had received the second copy of the subpoena had ambitiously already submitted a response. Now, this employee meant well. But the information submitted was only partial and failed to include information that was both responsive and important for our defense. So there's a theme running through my segment from last week and today. It's extremely important to have a clear policy explaining how to interact with the government. You won't routinely hear me advocating for policies because I'm a bit of a policy minimalist. Most policies are unread and the government loves to accuse you of failing to follow your own rules. So I think most policies hurt more than they help. But there are some notable exceptions. 
Policies that make, or make the most sense when you're in a complicated area where common sense won't provide the right answer. Um, they're also helpful in uncommon situations where a person might actually take the time to look for a policy. Then you can train staff that for these complicated, unusual events, they should look for the policy. The level of nuance required when you're thinking about interacting with the government is striking. In some situations, such as when you receive a civil investigative demand or a search warrant, you're most likely going to be required to produce the requested information. Medicare has the right to get many records immediately, though that's defined as within 24 hours. Listeners may recall my discussion about a client that lost its DME validation when a well-meaning receptionist refused to allow the National Supplier Clearinghouse representative the right to take photos of the DME inventory. Without sufficient training, staff may refuse to provide information in ways that are very detrimental to the organization. But there are other situations where you may be prohibited from sharing information. There are times when the health information might be protected in such a way that even a government official with a subpoena isn't allowed to obtain the information and they have to go get a court order. For example, HIPAA can allow government access to documents, but remember that even when HIPAA allows a release, a more restrictive state law preempts it. Certain records like chemical dependency have special protection, and there are times a patient may be in the hospital but properly be able to refuse to have their presence disclosed. This is a complicated situation with no one-size-fits-all answer. So part of the solution? The policy should instruct staff that any request for information from a government, government official must be addressed immediately with professionals in compliance or legal. Staff shouldn't be making independent decisions about what should or should not go to the government. This is a place where the proper initiative is getting expert help. Now, I have two resources that can be helpful. First, I've got a laminated wallet card that explains what you should know if you're contacted by a government agent. In addition, we have some training available that you can provide your staff on how to interact with the government. If you're interested in either of these, both of which are free, drop me an email. In the words of Fleetwood Mac, if you go your own way, you may wind up telling me why everything turned around, but not necessarily in a good way. Tell me why everything turned around. You can go your own way. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Last Tuesday, CMS posted the proposed rule for the inpatient perspective payment system. Here now to report on that developing story is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck, and hello to our listeners. Yes, CMS did proposed rule for inpatient prospective payment system fiscal year 20 last Tuesday. This proposal has packed quite a punch. The 1,824 pages that Dr. Hirsch talked about covered a number of topics, and I'm just going to do a quick summary. There were 13 changes to the MSDRGs and 11 updates to the MSDRG um, 981 to 983 and 987 to 989, and those are the DRGs with the diagnosis procedure mismatch. 
There's also an update to the ICD-10 CM codes, which net an additional 252 diagnosis codes, an update to ICD-10 PCS, which results in an overall decrease, yes, I did say decrease, of 1,660 procedure codes. There was an update to the hospital-acquired condition reduction program, um, but only just the policies, and they added no new measures to that program. They also updated the hospital value-based purchasing program without changes to the measures. Proposed rule states that approximately $1.9 billion will be available for incentives in fiscal year 20. Of course, that number may be revised in the final rule. They also reviewed new technology add-on payments. There is a change or a proposed change in how they calculate the payment, increasing the percentage to 65 rather than 50% of the cost between the MSDRG payment and the cost of the, the program. So that could be a, a bonus to facilities. Three of the new technology add-ons were discontinued from fiscal year 19, while nine were continued from fiscal year 19. And there are 17 new requests um, for new technology add-on payment. For the hospital acquired condition and value-based purchasing program, proposed rule begins to coordinate those two programs. Additionally, CMS has posted that there the removal factors when considering the elimination of a measure. These two programs will utilize the same processes for data collection and data validation. For the value-based purchasing program, the data collection period for fiscal year 22 will be July 1, 2018 through June 30, 2020 for the patient safety indicators and the data collection period of 1-1-19 to 12-31-20 for the Centers of Disease Control National Healthcare Safety Network Healthcare Acquired Infections. The domains will continue to be equally weighted at 25% for your total score. I do want to discuss some other changes around MSDRG, which are the changes in the severity designation for diagnoses, which Dr. Hirsch has also alluded to. There will be an overall decrease of MCCs in version 37, such as acute myocardial infarctions will shift to a CC status from an MCC status. And the same will happen to pressure ulcers chain pressure, ulcer stages three and four will be CCs rather than MCCs. There is also a decrease in the number of CCs for version 37, 837 less to be exact. The neoplasm that were CCs are changing to non-CCs as some injury codes are also losing their CC status. Good news is that all the pressure ulcers will have a CC status. This change in pressure ulcers also impacts the hospital-acquired condition reduction program in that all pressure ulcers, no matter the stage, will be part of the program and not just stages three and four. This is important information for the quality department. If you're looking for details on the inpatient prospective payment proposed rule, please see the Laurie Johnson handout under the handouts tab. And Chuck, with all of that information, it's back to you. 
Thanks, Laurie, very much. That was Laurie Johnson. Laurie is the ICD-10 Monitor Contributing Editor, and she's also the Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions. Target and probe and educate auditors appear to be more draconian than rack auditors. For details on this developing story, here is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Happy Monday. Let's talk about targeted probe and education, or TPE audits. CMS asserted that the intent of TPE audits is to reduce provider burden and appeals by combining medical review with provider education. TPE involves up to three rounds of review conducted by a Medicare Administrative Contractor, or MAC. Congress has been instructed that the RAC audits are not fair, and providers have complained that the RAC auditors did not help with education. So CMS came up with these TPE audits, which supposedly had more of an education aspect and supposedly a more fair approach. But personally, I think CMS has underhandedly implemented TPE audits to take the place of the RAC audits without Congress's approval. However, the implementation of the TPE audits have been just as draconian and subjective as the RAC audits. The penalties are actually worse. And so I want to discuss the appeal process and why it's important to appeal at the first level of audit. First of all, you can find the TPE process in the Medicare Program Integrity Manual, Chapter 3, Section 3.2.5. The MACs are afforded a lot of discretion. They are often making erroneous decisions and providers are not pushing back. The MACs get to decide which providers to target, whether the claims meet coverage requirements, what error rate is considered compliant, when a provider should be removed from a TPE. Providers can be subjected to future audits based solely on the MAC's determination before the provider has received an opportunity to challenge these claim denials through an independent appeals process. In this way, misapplication of coverage requirements can lead to further review or disciplinary action based on a determination that is later overturned. Similarly, while the educational activities are supposedly meant to assist providers in achieving compliance, in practice, they can force providers to appear to acknowledge error findings with which they may disagree and which may ultimately be determined to be wrong. The program promises further education and training for a failed audit, but most of the training is general in nature, is provided remotely, either over the phone or via web conference or through the mail, with documentation shared on Google Docs. Only on rare occasions is there an on-site visit. TPE reviews and TPE audit overpayment determinations can be appealed through the Medicare appeals process. I mean, why appeal? I get it. It's expensive. It's tedious. It's time-consuming. It's emotionally draining. Sometimes it's more expensive than the actual audit, but it sends a message. Right now, the MACs hold the metaphoric conch shell. The Medicare appeals process allows the provider or supplier to overturn the TPE audit overpayment and reduces the likelihood of future TPE reviews. Other Medicare audits and disciplinary actions such as suspension of Medicare payments, revocation of Medicare billing privileges, or exclusion from the Medicare program. 
In instances when a TPE audit identifies potential civil or criminal fraud, it's essential that the Medicare provider engages experienced healthcare counsel to appeal the Medicare overpayment as the first step in defending the provider's billing practices and thus mitigating the likelihood of fraud allegations. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you very much, Nicole. That was Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of the Potomac Law Group. As we head into the 2020 presidential election, good news, there appears to be bipartisan support and the surprise balance billing practice. With more on this developing story and other legislative news coming out of Washington, here is Matthew Albright. Good morning, Matthew. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Chuck. It's a pleasure talking to you and your listeners again. Chuck, there were nine children in the Albright household, and like most families, my siblings and I fought quite a bit. However, the one thing we tried not to do, even when the fights got rough, was to fight in front of our parents. It was generally agreed that we had to keep the fight quiet and to ourselves so that it didn't attract attention from our parents and and blow up into a a bigger mess. I think that's analogous to what is going on in Washington, D.C. right now. What we're seeing is a certain move legislatively toward trying to improve our healthcare system with smaller fixes. And in those smaller fixes, we're seeing something of what we'll call a, a kumbaya trend between most Democrats and Republicans, and the same between providers and payers. The reason is the payers and the providers and most of the lawmakers want to avoid broad sweeping healthcare reforms, just like my brothers and sisters and I wanted to avoid attracting the broad sweeping smack right from our parents. We can expect that the states and maybe even Congress will be more likely to pass smaller fixes to the healthcare system in order to avoid any larger shifts in the healthcare landscape. For instance, Medicare for all uh, or another attempted repeal of the Affordable Care Act. According to a Kaiser Family Foundation poll released last week, that's what the majority of Americans want as well. While around 30% of those polled wanted the ACA repealed and about the same percentage wanted Medicare for all, the great majority of those polled wanted smaller, incremental legislative actions to address costs over those broader, sweeping healthcare reforms. And, and Wall Street seems to agree with this trend as well. Repeal of ACA and Medicare for all and S&P Global Report said last week are not likely to be implemented in the near term. But, the report said, we can expect incremental legislation on health care in the next year or two. So some of these, these smaller incremental legislative actions include fixing surprise balance billing, drug pricing, legislation to uh, stabilize or support affordable care provisions, and maybe expansion of Medicare and what they're calling Medicare X, a government-supported health plan that would compete with commercial plans. Let's start with surprise balance billing. We're seeing already that those advocating Medicare for all are using surprise balance billing as yet another example of why our current healthcare system is too broke to fix. That's one reason why Congress is well on its way to a national prohibition on surprise balance billing of the patient. So why hasn't the Senate introduced the bill yet? They're stuck on this question. If the patient doesn't have to pick up the difference between the bill charges and the insured amount, who does, right? So that's where the disagreements are, are quietly happening behind the scenes so as not to cause too much attention. We do expect to see a bill in May or June and probably a law by the 2020 election. 
We're also seeing that states are putting in protections that mimic the Affordable Care Act's most agreed upon provisions, even in Republican states, in fear of that lawsuit that was started in Texas that the administration most recently announced that it would not fight against. In the next year or so, we're also likely to see proposals such as expansion of Medicare and public plan options that may get more ground than would usually be expected. Last week, for instance, the Colorado legislators sent a governor a bill that would start the process to have a public option, Medicare X, in place in Colorado by 2021. So all indicators point to an avoidance of sweeping change, at least in the near term. And in related news, Chuck, my brothers and sisters and I get along pretty well now. Chuck? Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was Matthew Albright. Mr. Albright is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. He is also the former Director of Administrative Simplification Group at CMS. Here now with the results of the Modern Money Listener Survey is Nancy Beckley. Hey, Chuck. We got some interesting comments here. We have 20% of our listeners this morning that currently code social determinants. 8% have talked to coders, but they still don't code them. And 53% plus 17%, which I guess is 70%, say they have no idea if they code them or not. So, Dr. Hirsch, we looks like we would want to hear more about this. Very good. Thanks, Nancy. And, uh, David, we've got time for just a couple of questions. Let's go. First, Dr. Hirsch has actually some breaking news from CMS. I do. Two minutes after I did my segment, I got an email that CMS admits they made a mistake in the display version of the rule. So if you're looking at the CCMCC changes, look at the table 6P1C and ignore what's in the actual display version text. Thank you, Ron. And Chuck, I think that's all we have time for. I'll turn it back to you. Yes, thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch, and thank you, David Glazer, very much. That is going to be a wrap for us, and we thank you very much for being with us. Today, special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who had breaking news just a few minutes ago, Laurie Johnson, of course, our special guest, Matthew Albright. And we thank you for starting off your week with us this morning, and we look forward to your being with us next Monday for another live edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.